Hey, before the episode starts, we just wanted to give a disclaimer that we do not claim to be professionals in any of the areas that we talk about. We are simply college students learning as you guys do. So please keep that in mind. Thanks. Welcome back, ladies and gents. Episode three. What's going on, guys? Just hanging out. Hey, hey. Straight chilling. Yeah, we got a long weekend ahead of us. Feeling good? Uh, I'm stoked. I'm as ready as I can be. I mean, I, gotta, I don't know. I got way too much to do, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's whatever, whatever. Yeah, seriously. Schoolwork is kicking my butt for this week, so. Yeah, honestly. I had papers due this last week, and then I've got exams going on on going on all next week so it's gonna be just an absolute nightmare r-u-p-h we got a good show ahead of you guys today uh for politics i think we're just gonna jump right into it ian if you want to take us away yeah i'm game all right so i'm sure this is now this is new news to you but uh we're gonna be talking today about uh Trump's declaration of a national emergency based off of the supposed border crisis. Man, he didn't get enough money. <laughs> yeah, no. Poor guy. All right, so I'm going <laughs> to give yeah, you some, dude, feel so bad. <laughs> some some little, little tidbits on the issue, uh, courtesy of BBC. Um, so right off the bat, um, 2018's uh, total number of migrants... Uh, of like coming into the U.S. this year, uh, peaked at four hundred thousand migrants, right? And that's just not the southern border. That's is that it for twenty eighteen or 2019? 2018. 2018. Wow. 2018 okay. peak was forty thousand. However, the this is actually considered like an all time low because um, as of the year two thousand, uh, total number of migrants peaked at one million six hundred and Fifty thousand, um, so that's you know, there's a stark difference. Uh, so the issue was, um, I don't know, according to BBC, uh, by declaring a state of emergency, he, uh, being President Trump, will be able to raid other department budgets to cobble together uh, eight billion dollars for construction on the southern border. Um, Wait, okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that the entire reason behind declaring a an emergency down south was to avoid another government shutdown. It was basically just, yes, con- or it was was it the Senate? Senate gave him he I think he gave wanted him like one point three billion. Yeah, I was about to say, of, he wanted the eight billion, which he's like you know requesting now. But yeah. prior to that, in order to get the government like you know out of shutdown, he had to sign an agreement. Yeah, I think it was like, like one point three. Billion. 1.35 yeah. for like i think it was like, like so yeah, many miles of right. fencing this isn't an actual like not like an actual brick wall it was just uh like reinforced fencing kind of like you know like like it's like the berlin wall minus the wall part like the areas of fencing i think that's what he was shooting for mm-hmm. in the agreement but you know clearly he that wasn't enough for him so he had to Shout out, uh, state of emergency. What are your thoughts, fellas? What's uh, 
I think I think this is pretty ridiculous. To, to <laughs> well, it's just to call it an emergency because I I I don't think it's an emergency. Not I think at all. I think we can fix a lot of things with our immigration system rather than putting up a fence. It's, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've talked about it before. Both sides of my family, in fact, probably all Americans come from immigrant immigrant families at some point. Mm-hmm. whether it's recent or way back. Right. And just to have a respect for who we are as a country, we should try and fix our immigration system to allow these people who are trying to immigrate here a safe passage to come in. Because it's so dangerous for these people who are immigrating from Mexico and other parts of Latin America to try and cross through the deserts of, of um, you know, the South American states, mm-hmm. southern, southern United States states. Yeah, and this isn't even like, I feel like, the media portrays this as like almost an entirely um, Mexican population that is going into the United States. Yeah. When it's actually mostly like uh, like there's Guatemalans, there's Hondurans, um, El Salvadorians. They're they're all they're they're just traveling through Mexico in order to get to the border. Right. And the reason why a lot of these people are traveling, just to keep in mind. They're fleeing situations in their own countries that are like unlivable. Exactly. Especially if you if you keep up on what's going on with Venezuela right now. Oh, I mean, yeah. dude, these people can't yeah. eat. So I mean, it makes sense that they're seeking asylum. Oh, so. totally. It's ludicrous that our our government are treating these people this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we used to be a force of immigration. Right. Like, we used to. I don't think. People who feel like they're, you know, they have a right to this country. People who were like born here. Mm-hmm. I don't think historically they've ever been stoked on immigration, but that doesn't take away the fact that the United States has always been a country of immigration. People right. have always immigrated here, whether the people born here liked it or not. Yeah, and the facts so, show that mm-hmm. it's at an, like immigration is at an all time low. Like this isn't, it's not like there's millions and millions of immigrants coming in from the Mexican border, you know, illegally crossing, like, it's at an all-time low yeah. within the past 20 years. I, yeah, I'm torn on the pro- I'm torn on the issue of immigration also because just as I've, just, for how much I feel like we can be doing better as a country to allow these people to come in and become citizens and start contributing to the economy and paying taxes and just you know right. adding to the melting pot right i feel like we should be doing an equal putting in an equal amount of effort to give aid to their countries back home like these these countries are living in 2019 they're not living in the middle ages like exactly they should be a lot they should be giving their their citizens um a life that is livable they should be giving their citizens a setting to live in which is livable yeah exactly i mean and if you think back to, I mean, this might be a little bit more of a deep cut, but like, if you think back to like the Monroe Doctrine, where it's like, okay, this hemisphere is the United States hemisphere. Like, this is, you know, this is the if, the, if a country should need aid, it is our responsibility. Obviously, Monroe is like, like, that's, that's early 19th century. Like, this is, it's, it's, it's almost, it's 200 years old now. However, like, I feel like if we're already, I mean, going back to the Venezuelan issue, if we're already recognizing a new government in Venezuela and are willing to offer aid 
for like you know a political ally why can't we just why can't we do that to someone who's who should have been a priority beforehand yeah i mean the united states already has a bad reputation with setting like staging coups in foreign countries right. and exactly and, and inserting our own form of government into their countries that more often than not just don't work mm-hmm. you know such as like panama for example exactly mm-hmm. i mean because that went so well and then like on top of that it's just you don't want to it's a, it's such a it's it's like um it's so delicate trying right. to trying to give aid to these countries because a lot of people just don't even know where to begin and which is the problem we're seeing with these like mass amounts of people fleeing countries within latin america it's like we've we've already had such a bad history with trying to quote unquote help these people right and their governments but really we've we just messed them up even more so a lot of these countries are having problems economically that we as a we as the united states helped just blow up Mm -hmm. way back when i think I mean, I feel that we're in agreement on this part of the the National Emergency Declaration, but I feel that it would be interesting to talk about the, I guess, the implications of this more on the state side okay. and what's actually going on with it, like mm-hmm. the backlash with everybody in the Democratic Party, with Nancy Pelosi calling him out, with yeah. everything there. I think that's a very fascinating topic to also talk about. Since, I mean, I feel that we all agree that we should be doing better to help out these countries, to give them aid, to give them, you know, to help them out in these situations that they're in that aren't exactly the best, but also not sort of force things upon them. Exactly. No, you're right. But, And I, that's what I find so interesting is like the, he pulled this state of emergency without majoritarian party support. Yeah. Like they, like he didn't even have like Republican backing for this. Like he this not a is, majority. Not a majority no. by any means. I mean, I don't that like I just think like I mean, that's quite the move to just like jump head first into a state of emergency without partisan support. I mean, I mean it's no secret Democrats already hate you. Like what what's mm-hmm. new? But like the fact that you you're getting a handful of like the more the f- more farther right um support from the party rather than like a republican party majority like that's i don't know i think that gives a lot more context i mean a lot of a lot of the party is like all right trump ride or die like this is yeah. like i mean this is this is strictly partisan we're sticking to the republican and for him to just sweep this and then for his part of his party to go like step back and be like whoa like what? Yeah. Where, where is this coming from? Like I think that's bold. And the and like the ACLU, I'm drawing a blank on what stands for. Like they're they just submitted uh, like a suit, like a they're suing President Trump. Oh yeah. For mm-hmm. like unconstitutional use of um uh, like executive power, like that. That's insane. Like that's so. But this crazy. isn't the first mm-hmm. time a president has gone out of his way to accomplish his own personal political agenda. I mean, 
That is true. We put Abraham Lincoln on a giant pedestal, and he went against he went against Congress and did several things during his presidency that weren't constitutional, but they had benefits. I mean, he. It's just not the first time that a president has done this, and right. we, this is where understanding history would come in handy for a lot of American citizens because we could learn from our mistakes in the past and try and correct them now. Right. But we don't. I mean, that's a big thing. Uh, that's a that's a big part of history is that we, as people living in the modern times, often don't think to look back and just mm-hmm. draw draw connections and see if we can correct ourselves. Right. I think in this situation, it's important to look at this this immigration uh, emergency, this southern border emergency from all sides, from whether it's economically, racially, religiously even, mm-hmm. um, or geographically, obviously. It's important that we try our hardest to understand what's going on in order to, as, as a society, create a new direction to go in. I mean, with the elections coming up in 2020, it's going to be interesting to see this. Because, I mean, immigration is always a part of the election cycle. If you mm-hmm. look at the debates, they're always, they always talk about immigration. Always. Right. But now it's become an emergency. This next election cycle is going to be very real. What are we going to do about this emergency? Are, are the Republicans going to keep Trump's agenda going with this emergency? Or are the Democrats going to come in, take over, and change it? It's yeah. just, it's going to get very interesting. And this is, like, at this point, it's so much farther beyond than, like, oh, like, this is this is his word. Like, he said he would do this. Like, it is, it's a national emergency. Like, this is not just, like, oh, like, keeping in tune with your base. Like, this is way, way beyond that. It's very real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, it's interesting to see yeah, how this will impact the 2020 elections. Absolutely. Because if this backfires on him, I don't think he really has a shot of being reelected. I mean, then again, that's a whole other story. Yeah. But I think that this does also have a big possibility of being able to withstand the lawsuits because if it goes to the Supreme Court, they got a majority on the Supreme Court that's more conservative. Yet, the chief judge is now sort of in between. He voted yeah. to... He voted against the abortion ruling. I believe ruling. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. He declared, they declared it unconstitutional, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's still there. Mm-hmm. But I think with that, I think he has a possibility of keeping this national emergency and that could also really stimulate his base because then he could say look i really fought for this despite the opposition quote unquote and so i think no matter what happens it's going to have very significant impacts on the 2020 presidential election it's definitely having a uh, a major effect on our culture and just to tie that into a request we got online, uh, somebody was wondering what we thought about the connection between culture and politics. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how does... I believe the question was, like, how does, like, culture with, like, television, music affect our own political views and how we view 
like cultural, social, and political events. Yeah, how it affects our outlook. Yeah, exactly. And I think they go hand in hand, honestly. I think ge- geographically, where you grow up, the culture that you live in while you're being raised has a large uh, influence on how you view the political spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. I grew up here in Utah. Uh, I would say the greater majority of people who surrounded me growing up were conservative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that, that classic saying, you, you become who your friends are. And as a society, it's like, okay, well, the individual will most likely become uh, the people around him or her. And, for example, a lot of people here are religious. Um, no surprise, living in Utah. But um, that draws a sort of conservatism about it, a sort of tradition that you'd like to maintain within your household. If your neighbors mm-hmm. are all doing the exact same thing, that's a culture. You know, right. you, you each share a culture within your neighborhoods within your communities you start to go about doing things similarly and also if people start to vote a certain way that that spreads throughout your culture um and reflects in your culture right and like kind of going kind of like sidetracking that like a lot of like along with culture goes like censorship and like what you are allowed to view and i've never I didn't have, like, a whole lot censored. Like, as far as, like, material, like, it was, like, just something I, like, whether I chose to watch something or not. But, like, a a lot of my family, on my, my, like, both my parents, both their sides of the family were, like, fairly religious. Like, not necessarily, like, Mormon, like, Utah culture, but we're both fairly religious, fairly religious. And a lot of what they, like, consume media was censored. So they didn't have a lot of, like, kind of bigger picture ideals growing up because most of what they saw wasn't either the whole thing or they only saw little pieces of it or, like, even, like, like sad news. Like, think about, I mean, this is, like, like 9-11. Like, a lot of, like, even, like, in the schools I grew up, the kids were censored away from, like, stark political events because it was considered scary so and like in doing so you really don't it's hard for you to form a full political opinion through censorship so i think like that also plays a role into it as far as like forming your political ideas around culture so if like your culture revolves around censorship you're gonna have you're not gonna have an honest view yeah exactly you're gonna have a very skewed left or right view of something because a lot of what you're going to consume is censored yeah i think sort of going along with skewed views Mm -hmm. at least how i interpret this question may be a little bit different but i think our the media nowadays has really caused us to become more pessimistic more polarized as well yeah i mean how many movies are there that are about the end of the world in one way or the other how many movies nowadays especially like academy award winning ones are very dark very just almost depressing movies yeah you're right and i think while it's good to be honest and a lot of these things are honest in showcasing bad things that have happened it can create a pessimism about life in general of saying so they're not going to be able to do anything in congress they're not going to be able to do anything in politics why should i even care 
yeah, why right. should I even help out with that? Because it's not going to work anyway. But that's that's exactly where the censorship question also comes into play. I mean, this this question where politics and culture drive each other and are and are related. That's a that's a topic as old as time. In Plato's Republic, they actually t- they they t- touch on that, uh, where Plato suggests um, censoring all poetry mm-hmm. from the masses because he doesn't want mm-hmm. the people to become corrupt, become corrupt. Yeah. And become, um, you know, just, he doesn't want, he understood that uh, poetry, which is likened to, say, like the news or YouTube or the internet today, back then that was poetry. Poetry was a way for people to spread ideas and talk about social mm-hmm. issues and talk about all these things. And when people would listen to poetry, either they would, you know, either change their opinion on the topic that's being displayed or they would understand their own opinions even more and walk away from it with a different attitude. And so Plato understood that and was like, well, if we want a society where people all agree with each other and are dedicated to the, to the state and dedicated to society, you have to eliminate that outside voice that's you know, going against the status quo and it's going to change people's minds. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that was thousands of years ago and they were discussing it back then. It's, it's still something today where the news we watch and the media that is presented to us uh, changes our minds on a lot of things or um, exposes us to a lot of new topics. And the way that, that the media exposes us to these topics drives the culture around us and drives, drives our viewpoint of that topic. So mm-hmm. that's, that's how I think that that's how I see that question. Right. Is how, how are, how is culture and politics combined to, or yeah how how do they touch each other mm-hmm. so yeah yeah any any other thoughts fellas on that one uh i don't know i think we've covered it pretty well i mean they're obviously there i it gets to a point where they're inseparable i mean i mean as we talked about the u.s as of right now i mean just globally everything is very polarized so any media you're going to consume is going to be very polarized and like I said, it's inseparable. So, yeah. 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 So, uh, thank you, Ian, for politics <laughs> for this yeah. week. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, we, we, we went a little long there, folks. Thanks for your patience. We like to talk. And then uh, this week, we're going to, just same as the last few episodes, we're doing a This Week in History. And I believe Tuesday is the 19th. Mm-hmm. So, yep. on the 19th, uh, it, but just rewinded to 1945 february 19th 1945 the invasion of iwo jima begins during world war ii's pacific theater i'm a huge fan of world war ii history i know a lot of you guys are probably uh iwo jima is such a famous battle and for several reasons if you guys grew up going to a united states elementary school or Mm -hmm. any united states school for that matter uh, you've probably seen the famous photograph of the six soldiers raising a flag over a mountaintop. Or even the statue. <sighs> yeah. All over the exactly, place, exactly. Yeah, it's a famous image that became a symbol. And the backstory to that is completely different than how the photograph looks. That's actually the second flag being raised over Mount Suribachi mm-hmm. on the, uh, I think it's, yeah, the, the sixth day of the battle. So the battle itself... Damn. Starts February 19th, 1945, with mm-hmm. the invasion of the Marine Corps onto the island. The battle uh, lasts for 36 days. 
of nonstop fighting. Um, according to various sources, United States forces uh, were somewhere around 70,000 soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese forces were somewhere around eight, from 18 to 20,000 soldiers. So the Japanese oh, wow. found themselves vastly outnumbered in this battle. Um, I mean, anyone else, it would be a lost cause. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if you're familiar with Dan Carlin's podcast, he has a supernova in the east. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a two-part. It is. It's two yeah, parts. Dan, right Carlin's, now, yeah. Dan Carlin's Dan Carlin's hardcore, hardcore history, history on, on any podcasting platform. Definitely recommend. But he touches on the fanaticism of the Japanese during World War II and where that fanaticism comes from. These soldiers, uh, just a little context, these soldiers by this point in February of 1945 were so fatigued and so drained from, from the entire duration of their wars. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of World War II, Japan was already in a war with China um, and, had, and had conquered most of the Pacific. Um, by this point in the war, the United States had driven the Japanese clear out of um, the Pacific and, and had started to um, push, push the Japanese back into their old islands. And Iwo Jima is a part of an archipelago, I believe, of several different islands. Mm-hmm. And the United States were eager to capture Iwo Jima because Iwo Jima held an airfield. And if the United States were able to capture this airfield, that would give us a strategic advantage to be able to bomb mainland, mainland Japan uh-huh. and have our boys be able to fly back to a safe base. Gotcha. Whereas before, they'd have to fly back to you know aircraft carriers in the middle of the ocean. It was super dangerous. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we had, a lot of, we had a lot of benefits to conquering this island. The only problem was... Um, our scouts and our our intelligence weren't able to figure out how many soldiers were on this island. Some other context about uh, this battle and and the build-up towards the battle is that the island of Iwo Jima is eight square miles. Uh And what we didn't know then, but what we know now, is the Japanese on the island had entrenched themselves in over 11 miles of entrenchments and tiny island and caves that they had personally dug out in the months leading up to the battle. So when the Americans land on the Island, um, within the first, I believe within the first hour of American boots on the ground, there had already been an enormous amount of fighting Mm -hmm. going on. And that was just a taste of what they would be going through for the next month unbelievable amounts of carnage on this island. This is one of the only battles actually in the United States history where the number of the enemy, or actually I should say the number of U S casualties outnumber the total number of enemies fighting on the island. The casualty rates actually are shown in various different sites, but it seems to vary. Um, it says that uh, nearly uh, 7,000 U.S. Marines were killed um, and another 20,000 were wounded, whereas out of the 18,000, or yeah, out of the, um, let me see right here, looking on various sources. Yeah, and out of, out of all of the Japanese troops that were on the island, it seems that, yeah, yeah. So out of, out of the 18,000 Japanese soldiers on the island, Mm-hmm. Uh, all were killed, but 216 were captured alive. Oh my I mean, these soldiers literally fought to the death. 
in order in order to keep their homeland this Um, would be the or keep their homeland safe and out of out of mm -hmm. enemy hands this is the second to last battle Mm -hmm. of the pacific campaign for us during world war ii the only other battle to happen after this one is the battle for iwo jima which proves to be just as vicious and brutal on our soldiers as iwo jima was um man any thoughts guys i just like I think a lot of World War II is romanticized. I mean, as far as you hardly, I mean, not that like portrayals and romanticizations of the Pacific theater don't exist, but like most World War II scenarios you hear of like, oh, I don't know, like you hear of the the European theater and like, like the classic, you know, Americans versus Germans and, and Russians you know, versus Germans. Yeah, and like like, the, like you you hear like oh the uh, Germans Americans with their yeah with their overwhelming force and like oh the like, incompetence of Italy. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> like you just you just you hear it, just yeah. so much more about like how how great the United States was like in the war and stuff, but like and then you get to the Pacific theater and. We lost that many soldiers, yeah. like yeah, it, like, that's um, insane. There like, comes there comes a point when you look back on the number of casualties in each of these battles throughout the Pacific, and you wonder who really won. Yeah, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. like the Japanese may have been pushed back, but they didn't they didn't get pushed back without taking our boys. What's with the them. dad? What, yeah, like, th- American soldiers had three times the fighting force, and yeah. lost that many against for 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 what? For this this, this tiny island, this airfield, for yeah. eight like, miles of free yeah, real estate, for its free real yeah, estate, exactly <laughs> eight miles of real estate. I mean, like, how could you have prepared anyone for that? How? That was the thing is we really tried our hardest. Our our intelligence during the time of the war was some of the best in the entire world. Mm-hmm. So our turns out our our air force and our navy did several flyovers from the island and and had bombarded the. Yeah, I've had bombarded the island for I think a couple of months beforehand on different occasions. But three days before the battle, our Navy shows up with our Marine Corps on deck and start bombarding the island three days beforehand. And to just to just for some accounts that I've read over personal accounts from soldiers that were on top of the ships, they had thought from the level of bombardment our Navy had rained down on the island that there would be nothing left of the island. I mean, can you imagine the surprise our soldiers must have felt walking onto that island and having a full force of Japanese soldiers raining down on them? They, I would have been so confused. I would have been like, well, we've been down in the harbor watching Seriously. our ships yeah. rain on their parade for three full days nonstop firing and then just to see that it had zero effect. Yeah. There, there's Japanese innovation for you, I guess. But <laughs> Japanese endurance. For you, <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating hearing about this and having had the opportunity to live in Japan for a while and experience that Mm -hmm. culture, it still translates over, even though it's not, you know, they aren't fighting to the death right now for anything, but they still, they just have a cultural belief that surrendering is a fate worse than death. Yeah. Because just honor and respect in their culture is among the most important things that you can have and so it it makes sense that they fought to the death and they fought 
even though they were vastly outnumbered because for them they don't want That's people Japan. to know that yeah. they surrendered because if they go home they're going to be you know just outcasts ostracized. because of that they're going to be ostracized in their culture even though strategically it would have been better right you know um yeah you would have i mean granted if the japanese on the island would have evacuated prior to they risk having that airfield in the hands of the United States Air Force. That is Which true. they understood could not happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I mean, it is important for us to recognize the amount of bravery and the level of respect you have to have towards these Japanese soldiers. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. as far as last stands go, I think the Battle of Iwo Jima is way too often looked, looked over. Or mm-hmm. not looked over, just brushed over. Yeah. No one really, no one really takes that into consideration. A lot of these island campaigns um, wind up having a last last stand with Japanese soldiers giving their lives yeah. to the to the very last and 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 lasting to the very last amount of ammo before yeah. they had to draw sword or mm-hmm. bayonet. Just yeah. just an insane amount of devotion and dedication to the cause. Yeah. Seriously, it's, it's, oh no, you go ahead. <laughs> it's fascinating because then also in the book Unbroken. If you yeah. guys have read that, yeah. they they fight to the death even then, even after they were, you know, Japan had surrendered. There were people in these outskirts that were just that were still fighting to the death against American troops. And yeah, it's just fascinating to see what they're willing to sacrifice in order to protect what they feel is theirs. Mm-hmm. And there's a level of respect for that that I have because it's just it's not something that i would think to do instinctively right so yeah yeah unless like like even in today like i am like should i mean obviously it's very unlikely but should a draft ever happen i'm terrified of that like oh yeah uh, like i i am like I'm definitely like 100% an absolute pansy i'm with like, you on that one like, I'll, I'll be honest like i i like I can't fight a war, and I know that. Like, but just all these like, just like obviously, like it's hard to draw a line. Like, who is mm-hmm. a good guy, who is a bad guy? I mean, it just depends on who you ask. But like, for these young Japanese soldiers to just fight like that, and the Americans to just keep going and going. I'm good. how long? How many days was it, Ethan? Thirty six. Thirty six days of just non stop. I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. Like I can't. And, yeah. and the reason why it was 36 days primarily was because they didn't think, oh, they probably have caves dug out on the island that they're hiding in. So these soldiers are having to discover these islands, or these, sorry, not islands. They're having to discover these caves and go into them. Yeah. So it's just, it's like that. It's like going into a cave hunting for dragons. Right. Only, you know, you can't see these dragons. <laughs> Yeah, so when they when tunnels. they when they found these two hundred and I believe sixteen uh, soldiers that they had captured, yeah, mm-hmm. two hundred and sixteen captured, they were actually found for the most part in hidden caves. Yeah, um, a large amount of the soldiers had actually committed seppuku, also, which is if you're unfamiliar okay. with it, it's yeah. the Japanese practice of honorably committing suicide, mm. um, although frowned in the Western world frowned upon in the Western world. It was an honorable practice for soldiers for centuries in Japan to go through. Yeah. Um, 
like you said before, it was almost wor- it was worse to be captured by enemy soldiers than to just die at the hands of yourself because yeah. in a in a in a different sort of perspective, you are Japanese, therefore you being killed by the Japanese is more honorable than being captured by the enemy. And it shows that you have control over what's happening to your life at that point. And I think that's exactly. big for them. But yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, just something to keep in mind this week. Uh, if you if you want to look it up, there are a couple of movies that you could look up. Uh, Flags of Our Fathers, directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, depicts the, the story of the six American soldiers who raised the second flag over Mount Suribachi on the sixth day of the Battle of Iwo Jima. And then exactly mirrored to that, also directed by Clint Eastwood, is uh, Letters from Iwo Jima, which shows the Japanese perspective right. of the Battle of Iwo Jima. I think those two movies are a, uh, a perfect outlet to go look up if, you, um, if you're like me and you'd much rather see it on the silver screen uh, than look up tons of historical documents. I find tons of enjoyment in historical movies, and those two movies are um, uh, very accurate and, and portray the war that is not glamorizing and is quite honest. Uh, to mm-hmm. add on to that, there's a, although it's not uh, Iwo Jima, it is um, the... It's, it's taking the, I wanted to say Guadalcanal. I can't remember. I don't know how to pronounce it, but the movie's called Thin Red Line. Yeah, that's the Battle of Guadalcanal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it is, it stars uh, Sean Penn, John Cusack. Uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, Woody Harrelson, George Clooney. Um, very good. And again, it's not a dramatization. It's based off uh, a book by James Jones and his his view of the Jap- of the japanese theater um so yeah if you want more context and you know like ethan said prefer prefer the big screen uh thin red line any other thoughts peter no not really all right so again just something to keep in mind if you want to look it up this week and just another reminder on february 19th 1945 u.s forces invaded the island of iwo jima another turning point in the pacific theater of world war ii Mm -hmm. And that's it for this week in history. Great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Peter, if you want to take it over and switch it over to our culture section, going that would back be great. to, to yeah. culture, yeah. a little bit more culture for y'all. Yeah, fun. Uh, so we'll start with music picks for this week, and I'll go first. Uh, we we were joking about before we started this that modern day trap music, if you want to call it that, yeah. isn't good. But for me, the the genre of trap music isn't necessarily the rap, pers- like the rap type of music, but it's the electronic side only. And so, for me, my recommendation is this song called "Ruin," by it's a collaboration by Ikali and Seventeen Eighty Eight L. It's yeah so it's a lot different than music that i've recommended in the past (laughs) you like last week was super funky and just like poppy and stuff like that and then we had boyish which is like super melancholy super chill yeah yeah but this is a is a heavy electronic song that is absolutely one of my favorites 1788 l is an amazing artist although I'm starting to worry that all of this, that he's just like a one trick pony and all of his songs sound that's the same, fair. but that's me personally. Uh, but yeah, that's my song recommendation for this week. Let's give that a quick listen. 
good stuff ian what is uh what is your music recommendation for this week uh i've been listening to a bunch of cory wong um, oh cory wong yeah like he's a he's the guitarist and i want to say occasional bassist but don't don't you know quote me on that uh he's worked with Wolfpack, yes Flyers, okay uh busting the bass he's very talented and his solo projects are really good he had one come out uh this year uh, called 08.26.18. Um, I think it's a live performance, but I've been listening to his EP, The Optimist. Uh, really, really good. Uh, he definitely he brings in some of the talents from his other project. Super talented. Um, if I were to recommend any of the songs, I would recommend The Optimist by Corey Wong. But the, the whole uh, Optimist EP, super funky, super jazzy, super jam jam bandy uh if that's you know a word uh but yeah that's my uh that's my recommendation for this week what about you ethan all right so this week i've been kind of on a uh more bluesy kick but what's new you know (laughs) uh my recommendation for this week is Junior Wells's Chicago Blues Band. Um, I don't really know the background uh, super well. Um, I was on sort of a, a, a music quest, as one goes on, late at night, mm-hmm. often. And I was looking up a bunch of Sam Cooke music. And uh, just under the recommended uh, was Junior Wells's Chicago Blues Band. Super bluesy, really edgy. A lot of harmonica, and it's early. It's early rock. It's in like the early rock stages of the late '50s, early '60s. Oh, tight. Real raw live performance music. Excellent listen. If you're ever in sort of a jammy type mood, go and give that one a listen. It's 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 uh, well worth it. And now I guess we're going to move on to our uh, our movies and TV selections for this sure. week. If you're ever bored and wanting to watch something, Peter, mm-hmm. you want to take that one away? Yeah. I'll, I'm going to tap more into Japanese culture again Titan. for this one. One of my absolute favorite movies, since I've been busy with schoolwork this week, I haven't been able to watch too many movies this week. Right. But Retweet. My, yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, For sure. Yeah. So, my absolute favorite Japanese film is called Ponyo. Mm-hmm. And they have, like, an English sub or dubbed version that Disney helped produce and everything here. It's just, it's an absolutely just happy movie. And just... What's it called? It's Ponyo. called Ponyo. Ponyo. P-O-N-Y-O? Yes. Gotcha. Ponyo. And so, it's... Yeah, and I'm butchering the pronunciation, but that's <laughs> yeah, dude. Actually, this belief. is funny you're saying that. I think my younger sister shouts, loves that movie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was talking about Ponyo, like when she was mentioning this to me. Yeah, 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 she was. It was Ponyo. It's just, it's such a happy movie, and it's, it's based off the story of the Little Mermaid, but it's got this super. It's just super Japanese, and right. it's just. 
the the art direction and just the style of it is just so beautiful and i just absolutely love it and so yeah i i can't say anything bad about it so that's my recommendation for this week awesome i got two as far as uh like tv and movies goes i like same same boat as peter i haven't really had had like a bunch of time however um, I just scrolled back through my Netflix and I realized I just rewatched all three of the original Indiana Jones movies. Oh. Wow! <laughs> there we go. Like I, I Utah's finest, dude. Indiana grew up in Utah. Yeah, oh, there we go. And like, I was, uh, yeah, just kind of scrolling and I like you know doing homework and having it in the background. I forgot how just like timeless those movies are, and like obviously a lot of the cultural stereotypes they play into it. Would not be accepted today, because which kind is of, horse, <laughs> which is like it, it's, it's a movie. It's it's pretty, <laughs> yeah. It's it definitely wouldn't be able to come out today. But like I don't know, Harrison Ford in his prime, Ooh. just you know, what a man, dude. yeah. Like what seriously, the absolute hunk he is. Just you know, cracking his whip around, getting <laughs> getting <laughs> Like what can I say? Now, which is your personal favorite of the three? Uh ooh, ooh. I don't know. I really like. Uh, the Last Crusade, probably because I love Sean Connery. Um, Sean Connery's always good. Yeah, uh, and I really Sir like Sean. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I I just kind of like the history of it a little bit more as far awesome. as like, the, like the uh, the Holy Grail and all that. Like I I just thought that part was really cool. My least favorite is probably Temple of Doom. That's cause, what? Like, I don't know. I, I just, would I have to agree. I just don't dig it. That's as much. such like, a good one. Like I the, love I it. Say, I will say. Sorry to cut you off, but Temple of Doom, though it though it is my least favorite indie movie, it has one of my favorite indie scenes really? where the dude pulls that guy's heart out of his chest and oh, is yeah, still beating yeah, in his hand. Yeah, yes, yeah. that is the that absolute is, best part. And yeah. I, growing up, I remember my uh, I was at my grandmother's house and we were watching that, and I had never seen it before. I can't remember how old I was, man. I was probably like, it's probably like six or seven, yeah, around there, really little. And uh, my grandfather was like, ooh, what are you watching? And uh, we were like, Indiana Jones. <laughs> and he was like, oh, there's a scary scene in this. And he walked upstairs, and I was like, oh, uh-oh, scary. Yeah, exactly. You know? I did the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> and then it happens. You know, he pulls that heart out of its chest, and the music mm-hmm. is just so like, ah. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It's so iconic. Something else about that movie is apparently, and I remember hearing this somewhere, and I just had to confirm it, is that that movie and that scene specifically is what brought about the PG-13 rating. Yeah. Are you really? Serious? Yeah. I had no wow. idea because that was they It was so yeah, on, it the, was, on the Yeah, fence. it was on yeah. the fence between PG and then R, I guess was the next one. Well, yeah. the more you so, know. PG-13 came because of Temple of Doom. That's hey, why it's hey, a good movie. Thank you. Thank you uh Indiana Jones Temple of Doom for you know, being allowed to for drawing a line. Yeah, exactly. Sand. For drawing a line. Yeah. So after I could, that movie yeah. came out, they had to then draw a line. Yeah. For exactly. Movies, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Any others, oh. Ian? Uh, that's oh, I've been playing this game called Overcooked, and oh, it's like it's yes. like I don't own. I am a not on your game link. <laughs> I have no idea what these games are. <laughs> it's it's kind of it's I don't know I don't know how popular it is. I'm gonna be honest, but you you and up to four friends uh, play like a tiny little chef in the kitchen, and you try to make orders like in like in like make meals in an order like list as they come through and there's like all these hazards there's like 
there's like, oh, like say you're on a floating platform and the platforms move or there's assembly lines that like move you or like if you don't cooperate, you like knock into each other and steal each other's food and just like throw each other off. Yeah. Really fun. A good time. It's it's really fun. Just kind of sit down. I wouldn't say it's relaxing, but it's mm. it's, it's it's definitely a stress fest. But super. <laughs> it's a fun stress fest. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun stress fest. There's therapy in your stress. Yeah, levels. seriously, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You're like I'm stressed, but I'm also having fun, so it's all right. What about you, Ethan? Yeah, I have two recommendations. Uh, this week I've been super uh, into the documentary list that have been coming out on Netflix, and uh, Netflix put out. This is the reason also behind my music pick. Uh, Netflix put out a the remastered The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. Now, uh, if you're familiar with Sam Cooke, uh, you, you know him, you love his music. Um, many people don't know the, the history of Sam Cooke, who he was, um, what he did, the importance of uh, the, his importance in like the, the beginning era, the beginning um, events of the civil rights movement, and his death. Um, this documentary beautifully covers his life from beginning to end mm-hmm. and shows in depth his personality, his writing format, and um, you know just overall who he was to his friends, family, and to the, to the world at that time. So I would definitely recommend going and giving The Two Killings of Sam Cooke a viewing on Netflix. I'm also so deep into Chef's Table right now. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen Chef's Table? No, I have no, no idea. It's a documentary series also on Netflix where they highlight um, various chefs, their restaurants, their iconic dishes, mm-hmm. and what goes into each restaurant dish and, gotcha. and who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I love food. Um, most people do. But I, th- I like the creativity behind restaurants, and I like the bravery of a lot of these chefs. Um, it's surprising to me how many people don't understand the stress levels of the kitchen. Right. Um, I'm a huge fan again of Anthony Bourdain, just like watching his show did a little bit of exposing me to like the stress levels of the kitchen world. Mm -hmm. This show just makes that message come full circle, just brings it right back around and reminds you of the intensity of the cooking world and what these chefs do in their kitchens. Um, yeah, I would I would highly recommend giving Chef's Table and the Two Killings of Sam Cooke a watch if you've got Netflix this week. Sweet. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Anything else you guys want to add? I'm game. I'm done. I'm yeah. chilling. I think yeah. we're good. Yeah. Hey guys. Well, again, if you want, if you have a topic in mind you'd really like, and you would really like us to cover it here on the podcast, you can reach us at our Twitter. I believe. Absolutely. Uh, yes. S O N Podcast. I messed it up last time. This is the right one. Not the S-O-N POD podcast. podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm a moron yeah. still. I get well, it. All right. All right. <laughs> so if you, have, if you have a topic that you really want to hear our three sweet voices discuss mm-hmm. here on the podcast, right. drop it there. Either DM, DM the Twitter page or post up and tag us. Yeah, for sure. We, yeah. Will, we will most likely get to it. Anything else you guys would like to add? Well, if you're not on the Twitters, we also have an email. The.sun.podcast at gmail.com. So you can send us your recommendations there as well. Right. Hit us up up with your uh, your requests. Yeah. And I guess that is it for this week. Uh, Have a good one, folks. Drive safe out there wherever you are. The weather here in Utah has been absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So stay safe. Have a good one. And we will be back with you next week with a fresh new episode. Catch you guys later. See you.